Well, hello there, Cross Connection Church. I am Family Ministries Pastor Jason Brower. I am here to share with you this morning out of Deuteronomy chapter 26. So if you wouldn't mind, let's pray and then we will get started. Heavenly Father, as we open your word today, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would give us wisdom and discernment. And Lord, that as we dig into your word, that you would uh, use it mightily in our lives. Use it to uh, glorify you. Use it to help others and use it, Lord, in our lives to, to change us to be just a little bit more like you today. Or, Lord, even a lot more like you. Maybe we'll have something radical happen, Lord, and we'll take massive leaps forward in our relationship with you, Lord. We leave that up to you. We put ourselves under your direction, God. We give ourselves to you and pray that you would do a work in us and through us. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, so Deuteronomy chapter 26. Deuteronomy chapter 26 is, it's placed where the, the people of Israel are right on the border of the promised land. They're waiting to step into the promise that God has made for them. Um, they're right on the cusp of seeing what was been promised. Um, the promise was made to the people, not to the people that are there, but it was originally made all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. So let's look at that real quick. Genesis chapter 15, uh, verses 13 to 16, it says, And the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to, you, to them, and they'll be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nations they serve, and afterwards they will go out with many possessions, but you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So the point we're looking at there is he promised them that in four generations, they are going to return to the land that he is on right now. They're going to return to the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that was promised to them. That's what they're going to return to. That's what they're on the border of right now. And Moses, who is not going in with them because of circumstances where instead of Instead of speaking to the rock the second time, he struck the rock and God said, because of that, you will not enter the promised land. So Moses is here on the edge of the promised land and he's giving like his, his last set of instructions to the people before they move in. And here in chapter 26, he's giving them instructions for when you enter the land, when you've made it, when you've made it your home and you actually have your first harvest, this is how I want you to do it. So chapter 26, verse one, he says, when you enter the land of the Lord, your God is giving you his inheritance and you take possession of it and you live in it, take some of the first of all the land's produce that you harvest from the land the Lord, your God is giving to you and put it in a basket. So we're going to park right there for a minute. They're right on the edge of that. The promise was made over 450 years ago. Ever feel like it's taken a while for God to answer a promise? Sometimes it's wait. Sometimes it's wait. Sometimes it's going to be, hey, in 450 years. So hopefully not that long as we're waiting for something. But very often, God's time is not our time. And the thing that we need to reconcile is that God's time is going to be better doesn't always feel that way. It's not always comfortable, but God's timing is better than our timing. Maybe it's just a season for waiting right now, but maybe you are entered the land of this promise. Maybe, maybe you're ready to, to have your first harvest. Well, though it is the first produce of our land, their land, they were called to tithe out of like five or six different things. 
primarily the, the biggest symbolic thing is they would bring a sheaf of wheat and that's what would go in the basket because that's largely what they're harvesting is we're harvesting the, the produce of the ground and that's going to be what sustains us. Well, not many of us are agrarian in nature anymore. We live in an industrialized society where we're not very often tied to a harvest. Our harvest usually shows up in a paycheck every two weeks or every week or once a month or however it is. Um, so we're not growing crops. So then what is our harvest? Well, I would submit to you that the easiest thing to look at is money. Our harvest is money. We get paid for doing what we do in a job and that would be our harvest. But even something more valuable than that, because we can lose money, we can make money. The most valuable thing that God has ever given to us is time. Time we cannot get, you cannot get time back. Once it's passed, it's gone. There's no, there's no getting more of it. You can't spend money for it. Time is the most valuable thing. So as we look forward to this, as we look forward at this passage, keep in mind, what is it that God has given to us and what is he calling us to use in a way that glorifies him? So God calls them to bring a basket full of the good things that he's given to them. He's called it like this is this is a an opportunity for Thanksgiving. He says, bring this basket of produce, bring this basket symbolic of the first fruits of the harvest, because they were called to give a tenth of their whole harvest, and a tenth is not going to fit in this basket. This basket that they bring before the Lord is symbolic of what he has given to them. So they're not bringing the entire tithe and you know, like dragging donkeys in, carrying all this stuff into the temple there. They are bringing a basket that's symbolic of that and they're placing that before the Lord. So the question that I had, are we bringing a basket to God, as it were, we're not bringing baskets out, but are we bringing a grateful basket full of our blessings or are we sitting there with an empty basket full of unmet expectations going, well, Lord, I wanted something in my basket, but there's nothing there. Oftentimes, we don't, we don't get to see, we don't see the blessings that we have because we insist on looking at things we don't have. So point one in your outline, if you're taking notes, if we focus on what we don't have, it will blind us to the blessings that are right in front of us. Very often, we miss the awesome things that God has given to us because we're busy looking at something we don't have, something we wish we had, something that we don't have. Like, oh, Lord, I really wanted that, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe it's a Ferrari. We'll just throw it out there. Ferrari or Lamborghini or something like that. Or Tesla or what, you know, insert whatever thing that you want. And it's like, so we're so often want that, that we miss what God has for us. We miss what he's already given to us. So, if we focus on what we don't have, it's going to blind us to the blessings that are right in front of us. So then he says to them, put it in the basket, go to the place that the Lord your God chooses to have his name dwell. Well, for the children of Israel, as they've gone through their history, where does God choose to have his name dwell? First it was in the tabernacle, then it was the temple in Jerusalem. So this harvest would be brought to Jerusalem. They would bring that with them. They would go to the temple and they would say, I have brought what you've called me to bring, Lord. I have brought the first fruits. I'm laying them before you. But for us, we don't, we don't go to a temple. Like we're in a church building. Like I'm in a church building right now. You're watching from somewhere else, obviously. But 
God's name doesn't dwell in this building. Even if we put a cross on the outside and we, you know, call it something that's got his name in it, his name doesn't dwell in a building. He dwells in us now. So the temple that we are called to, to, to deliver these things to, the temple that we're called to glorify God in is us. It's our bodies. It's us. We are the body of Christ as believers. Well, you contrast the temple and the tabernacle and they were clad in gold and they were constructed of the most precious things. And it was like this amazing, beautiful feat of architecture and all the very best things that could be procured from anywhere were used in the construction and the decoration and the ornamentation of the temple. And God said, that's not what I want. Ultimately, I'm going to sacrifice my son so that I can dwell in people. That blows me away that he took what would have been seen by anybody walking the planet as, oh my gosh, look at that incredible architecture. He says, I don't want to live there. I want to live in you. Jason, I want to live in your heart. You, he wants to live in your heart. He would give that up to live with us and did give that up to live with us. And so he says, go to the place where you where the Lord chooses to have his name dwell. And he goes, and when you come before the priest serving at that time, say to him, today I declare to the Lord your God that I have entered the land, swore to our, that the land of the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. See, they're commemorating and they're reiterating God's promise to them. The first step in this, this ritual that they would do is remembering what God had promised. Well, as Christians, do we always remember that we're inheritors of great promises? Matthew 6, verse 24, it promises life and purpose. In John 6, 37, he promises acceptance into his family. In Mark chapter 10, verse 29, it promises that we're going to have rewards. In John 15, verse 9, it promises that we will have joy. In John 3, 16, it promises everlasting life. These are great promises that we as believers, we have those promises. We can count on those things. All of those things are super easy to be grateful for, right? It's super easy to say thankful for eternal life, for life and purpose, for acceptance, for rewards, for joy. But then you get to John 16, 33, and I'm going to read that to you really quick. So John 16, verse 33, and it says, I have told you these things that you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. He says, I've told you these things so you can have peace, but in this world you will have suffering or you will have tribulation. There is a promise from God. It's not one that we often see on a mug or embroidered on a pillow, but it is a promise of God that we will have suffering in this world. And it made me think, what if you or I are in a life stage where our first fruit, the thing that seems to be most productive in our lives, the thing that we've harvested the most, what if that is suffering? What if it is pain? What if our basket of first fruits seems just full of suffering? What are we called to do with that? Well, we're going to jump down into Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to look at that really quick. Philippians chapter 4. This is uh, verses 4 through 7. And he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again. 
Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He says to us, in all things, rejoice. In suffering, rejoice. How do we rejoice in suffering? We rejoice that He is with us. And He says, don't worry about anything but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God through prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God God I am going through pain I don't know why I don't know why I'm suffering like this Lord but you've called me to be thankful and I need to be thankful in it and then in verses 11 to 13 he says I don't say this out of need for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through Him who strengthens me. We very often look at that verse and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we use it at football games or we use it, you know, when we're going in for a job interview or we use it for, you know, before a workout or whatever. People use it all the time for all kinds of goofy stuff. But Paul here is talking about when things are hard, when I am suffering, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That doesn't mean that I can throw off my suffering and that all of a sudden my cancer diagnosis isn't going to be there or my family's not falling apart. What it means is I have learned that in all things I can cling to God and it will not sway me. That's what he's talking about here. Perseverance. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, where he says, And not only this, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. We rejoice in our afflictions. How often are we able to rejoice in afflictions? Why can we rejoice in afflictions? Look at this. Not only we rejoice in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This hope will be produced in our lives as we continue forward in suffering. Now the Bible has all kinds of passages about dealing with suffering. There's also Acts chapter 5 41, Philippians 1 20, uh, Philippians 3 10 is a great one for that. And pretty much all of 1 Peter is about continuing on in the face of affliction and suffering. So if you are someone where you're bringing your basket and your basket is full of pain and it is full of suffering and it feels like all your life is doing is producing more pain and more heartache, bring it to God. Bring that basket to him and say, Lord, this is what I have to offer you right now. I don't have riches. I don't have thankfulness even at this point. Lord, I'm just offering you my pain and watch what he does. Watch what he does in and through you as you offer that to him. Don't hold it close. Give it to him. Lord, I'm giving you this. Do with it, please, what you will. Watch how God works in that. Further on in the ceremony here in Deuteronomy chapter 26, it says, Then the priest will take the basket from you and place it before the altar of the Lord your God. And you are to respond by saying, In the presence of the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean. He went down to Egypt with a few people and resided there as an alien. There he became a great 
powerful and populous nation. Park right there real quick. So he talks about it. In order to celebrate the current blessings that we have here, in order to celebrate that, we need to remember what we were before. They're recounting here, the children of Israel, as they would go into this ceremony, they would recount where they started. We started as one dude who went down to Egypt and came out as a nation. So what I would encourage believers to do, what we learn in this passage, is to spend some time at the altar, spend some time in the presence of God, spend some time in prayer, and remember where we were before. Remember what we were before. Remember that I was once far from God. I was once a sinner. I was once the wretch that's mentioned in the song. I once was lost, but now I'm found verbally recalling the past. They're looking at where they started. They were saying these things out loud. We need to remember and recount the things that are done in our life. Speak about them with your children. Speak about them with your family, with your friends. Verbally recount what, what I was like before and how I am different now. Um, Pastor Nick and I were talking the other day and we were talking about stones of remembrance. And how the Israelites would very often, they would pile up these piles of stones on momentous occasions. When they crossed the Jordan, everybody brought a stone and they put it on a pile. So you know what this massive pile of stones meant to remind of what, we, what we'd gone through before. Set up stones of remembrance in your life. Set up reminders. This is what God has done. One thing that Pastor Nick does that I would love to do that I have not started yet, but I would love to do, but I have not started yet, which is slightly convicting for me, but I'm just gonna tell you what he does and why I think it's so powerful. Nick journals. So he journals, and in his journal, he will flag his prayer, his prayer requests with little tags like these, like I have in my Bible here. He'll, he'll put those in there, and every time a prayer request is answered, the tag turns to green. And so when he is looking, trying to, when he's having a hard time seeing how has God met me, or when he just wants to remind himself of the goodness of God, he can go through his journal and he can just look at all the green tabs. These are all times that God has answered my prayers. These are all times that God has come through for me. I want to be somebody that does that. Currently, moment of confession, I'm not. I have other ways. I'll, I'll make notes for myself. I'll, you know, for me, I very often will have like an object that reminds me of something. Mark down somehow. Mark down for yourself something that shows you the goodness of God. Something that, that reminds you of God's goodness and what God has done in your life. Set those stones of remembrance. The same way the children of Israel here are recounting and remembering what God has done for them. And then in verse six, it says, but the Egyptians mistreated and oppressed us. They forced us to do hard labor. So we called out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our cry. He saw our misery, our hardship and oppression. Then the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with terrifying power, with signs and wonders. He led us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They could sit there on the border as Moses is instructing them, and he's like, that's the place. That's the land of milk and honey. When you get there, remember this. And they're looking back through their history, and it always kind of makes me chuckle when I look at this, because they look back, and Egypt was the place that built the children of Israel. It took them from a family to a nation, but it's also the place that broke them down. 
and they, they become a powerful nation. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh's like, I don't know about this. And so he starts trying to break them down. And the children of Israel end up leaving Egypt as slaves. But they carry the riches of Egypt with them. Now, side note, they end up using those riches to build a golden calf in the desert to worship because Moses is gone for a little bit and they start doing all the same dumb stuff that they were doing before. And so Moses grinds the whole golden calf down and they drink the powdered golden calf. And so basically they leave all the riches of Egypt in steaming piles in the desert. And so they end up coming to the promised land without those riches. But here they are looking at, they're recounting this. And I don't know if they realize it, but it's pretty easy looking back on their struggle that God used Egypt to build them up and he used oppression and slavery to get them moving in the direction that he wanted them to go. And this is something that if you've ever dealt with livestock, you know that livestock moves best when they're hungry. We had goats for a little bit. We have plenty of chickens now, but it works well with children also, <laughs> and us, honestly, if we're honest. When we're hungry, we're easy to lead. And so God here is leading his people using manna, using quail, using a pillar of fire, using a covering of smoke, using all these things because sheep move best when they're hungry. God is often uses those things in our lives. He uses needs in our lives. He uses difficulties in our lives to move us in a direction he wants us to go. They're not always difficulties God has brought to us. Some of them we just have no problem manufacturing for ourselves through bad decisions, but God will use those things to guide us closer to him. So God has provided for them and guided them in miraculous ways and showed that his promises will be fulfilled. In verse 10, it says, this is their response. I have now brought the first of the land's produce that you Lord have given me. You will then place the container before the Lord your God and bow down to him. So they bring this basket and they said, Lord, I have given, I have brought to you what you have given to me. See, the basket of goods and the tithe that they're talking about here, it was a thank, it was a thank you. It was rejoicing at the provision that God had provided for them. Um, think of it less like a tax and more like Thanksgiving. Because they're, they're not going, man, God wants 10% for me. I can't believe this. They're going, God has given me so much and this is my opportunity to give back to him. Here is my basket, Lord. Here is my tithe. Thank you for what you have given me. We are blessed to be a blessing to each other. And we see this, this whole section is about ritual and remembrance. It's a, a ritual that is designed to help the children of Israel remember. Remember where they were, remember what God did, remember where they are, and remember what God wants them to do and who he wants them to be. We could use a little bit of that in our own lives. Something we do, and this is not in my notes, so if it goes terrible, it goes terrible, that's okay. But something that we do in my family, we do a Thanksgiving time capsule. So someday, either, either before the meal on Thanksgiving, when we're still at home getting ready before we're heading out to uh, our in-laws place, you know, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law's house, or after, maybe it's the Friday afterwards, we'll get together and we do a time capsule as our family. And it's one of those big, you know, those 
Christmas popcorn tins you get because they're all like big and it's easy to close and everything. We started with much smaller, we started with a coffee can, but when you do it for a while, you need more room. So we got this big can and we, you know, we'll do things like the kids will trace their hands and put it in there. So you can see the progression of the size of their hands as they've grown. We, they'll take pictures of things that they're thankful for. They'll write notes about things that we're, that we're thankful for. And we'll put those things together, all the things that we're thankful for, and we'll put them in the time capsule. And then the next year we open it up because we're ready to add more things, but we always look back at the old things. We're looking back like, what was I so thankful for that year? Oh, I was thankful for this and I started a new job and God did this and my kids were doing this and we had all these things to be thankful for. And now what am I thankful for this year? And then we turn it forward. Sorry, I got <laughs> Emergency check. Or, you know, urgent check. Sir? Oh. That's your tithe dollars at work. Nick, feel free to leave it in. <laughs> it's important stuff. So, but we'll remember it that way with our time capsule. And we, we look back at what we've, what we've, what we were thankful for. And we look at the present of what we're thankful for now, and we'll, we'll maybe write down things that we're excited for in the future. Ritual and remembrance is important. And then in verse 11, he says, and then you, the Levites, and the resident aliens among you will rejoice in all the good things that the Lord your God has given to you and your household. This was designed to be something to rejoice over. This was not a, man, I can't believe I got to write this check. Like, you know, every... Twice a year, Dan McAllister sends me a little notice asking for a giant pile of money. And it's like, I don't like that one. I don't like writing that check at all. I, I, <laughs> I get further and further away from enjoying that check the more I pay it. But this here is an opportunity designed, not like property taxes, this is designed, the purpose was to rejoice at what God has done for them and for their household. The purpose was to cause communal rejoicing, not just rejoicing in the person, but rejoicing in the community for the favor that God had given to each person. It's a, the favor that God had brought you as you joyfully give back a portion of that to God. Thank you for all that you've given to me. Lord, I give this back to you to show you that I'm thankful. See, we sometimes have a tendency to focus on the loss of value when we give. We look at the, ooh, because we're watching that bank balance drop as we give back or something like that. See, we, we, we tend to focus on the loss of value instead of rejoicing at the opportunity and the ability to give back, which is kind of painful. See, this happens because we forget that everything we have is from God. And we have nothing except that God has given it to us. Psalm 139 verse 13 talks about how when you were in the womb, I knew you and I put you together. So talents and abilities, those things come from God. James chapter 1 verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father in heaven. Everything that we have comes directly or indirectly through God. And if we don't remember that, it makes it hard to give. I give electronically. I have set it up so that it automatically deducts every month, boom, twice a month actually, boom, 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 boom. I don't have to think about it, I don't have to remember it, which is kind of a shame, but let me tell you why I do that. Because I used to write a check for my tithe. And if you know me, you know I sometimes can be forgetful. And I would forget to write the check one week. 
And then I'd forget to write the check the next week. And then I'd forget for that month. And, I'd and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I haven't written my tithe check in like three months. I need to write that check. And you go to write it and you're like, whoa, whoa that's a really big check. And I would find myself moving from a place of rejoicing that I can give to a place where it's like, oh, this is going to hurt. And see, because I had not taken care of it the way that I should have, now it took me from a place of being a cheerful giver to being a fearful giver. Like I'm no longer like, woohoo, this is great. I'm, oh, is this going to damage my account? Am I going to be able to make my... It's all God's. If I could go back to past me and just remind myself, hey, everything you have is from God. Dummy, you should know that already. But all you're doing is giving a portion of what he's given to you back. It would give me perspective back and I would be able to think about it a little clearer. But somehow when the zeros add up on a check, all of a sudden our thinking goes out the window and all we go, eh, we tend to. Maybe it's not you, maybe it was just me. But if we remember that everything we have is from God and that this is a thank you, it helps me make things a little more clear. So now we're coming to a new section here. It's similar in that they're talking about the tithe, but see, this is the tithe on every third year because they would do things differently on the third year. So it was, they had a seven year cycle. And so year one, two, go to Jerusalem, give your tithe. Year three and six, you would stay in your town and you would do your tithe there. So verse 12, it says, when you have finished paying all the 10th of your produce in the third year, the year of the 10th, you were to give it to the Levites, the resident aliens, fatherless children and widows so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. See, this one's different. They don't go to Jerusalem. They distributed in their town where they were. Some commentaries say that the distribution was done by the giver giving directly to those who were in need. So it's like that was the year that they would go and they would take the 10% of what they had grown and they would go and they, here you go. And they would take care of the people around them. Um, and the purpose of this was to feed the widows, the orphans, the resident aliens around them. See, it was the responsibility of the individual to meet the needs of those around them. It was real rubber meets the road ministry. Point number two in your outline, if you're taking notes, is that God blesses us so that we can bless others. God blesses us so that we can turn around and bless other people. In this case, it specifically points out widows, orphans, and resident aliens. We know from the, the parable of the Good Samaritan in the New Testament, if we're going to give to those around us, it's gonna be our neighbors, who's your neighbor? And Jesus is like, well, your neighbor's basically everybody that's around you, so go ahead and take care of the people around you. God blesses us so that we can bless others. Then in verse 13, he says, you will say this in the presence of the Lord. Once again, we're back to the verbal ceremony. Now this would happen, most scholars indicate, in the fourth year, because this would be done in Jerusalem, and they would say, in the presence of the Lord your God, I have taken the consecrated portion out of my house. I have also given it to the Levites, the resident aliens, the fathers, children, and the widows, according to all the commands that you gave me. So they would attest in year four and year seven that I did what you called me to do in year three and year six. I promise that I did what I was supposed to do, in effect. See, they placed a high value on the truth. This is not an easy thing for the priests in Jerusalem to verify. It would be difficult to verify whether or not this person actually did what they said they're going to do. So it's a high level of trust that they're going to make a vow before God that this is what they did. Now, would we believe somebody 
to be honest about this? And the even bigger question, have we lived a life that would show other people that we could be trusted this way? That yes, I did that a year ago. I fulfilled that promise. Something to think about there. I have not forgotten, going on in verse 13 and 14, I have not forgotten your commands. I have not eaten any of it while in mourning, or removed any of it while unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. Now, these things are a little foreign to us, because when they're talking about um, eating any of it when mourning, that indicates that it was like part of a pagan ceremony, or removed it while unclean, or you know, procured it or handled it in an ungodly way, or offered it for any of the dead. What they would do... A lot of the pagans in that area at that time, they would take an offering for the dead. They would take food items and they would place it in the tomb where the dead person was. And they're making sure that they haven't, you know, the, their vow, they're taking their vow that I have not operated that way. I've not gone to the tomb and taken it out of the tomb and then turned around and given it to the people that are in need. Point three in your outline, how and why we give is more important than what we give. Once again, how and why we give is more important than what we give. For us, we're not helping others with selfish motives. We're not serving, ostensibly serving the Lord and doing it out of selfish motives. We're not serving in a ministry because we're secretly trying to find a spouse. We're not going to church because we're looking to find customers for our business. We're not, you know, we're not serving in a way, we're not offering in a way that's designed to gain us at the expense of God. I'm not helping others with funds or time that belongs to someone else. I've seen this happen multiple times in the past where you will have a Christian who thinks that it's okay to have 45 minute Jesus conversations on company time. That is stealing from your boss. It's called time stealing and you can be fired for it, but if you're a teamster, it's very difficult to get fired. So I watched guys almost get fired for it or get written up for it, all kinds of things like that. Um, but your time, if you're on the clock, you're not, you're not offering something to God by stealing something from your boss. Have the conversations on your break. Have the conversations on your time. Um, the same way that you can't give other people things that don't belong to you and call it charity. Helping others with other people's possessions, that's theft. That's not generosity. Me stealing from you to give to them, that's not generosity. That's just theft. That's not something that's glorifying God. Um, also, stealing time that belongs to your spouse and your children? No, that's theft from them. So we, we have to be careful with how and why we give. You could give a million dollars. If your heart's not right, there's going to be no advantage to that for you. I'm not giving something dead and pretending it's alive. If you have a dead faith, you're not going to be able to share living faith with the people around you. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work. So getting on in verse 14, it says, I have obeyed the law. I've obeyed the Lord my God. I have done all that you commanded me. See, they're offering from an abundance designed to satisfy the people around them. And the side effect is that they get to enjoy giving it. The side effect is I'm giving this, God has called me to do it, but I get to do it from an, in an act of generosity. I get to bless the people around me, but only if I give it honestly. So point four, question for you. Do I give in a way that pleases God? Do I give because I feel like I have to? Do I give because I want to be seen as giving? Or am I giving because... I love Jesus and I'm recognizing all that he has done for me. Lord, thank you so much. I'm going to give back. 
And I know that there's going to be people that say, well, that's Old Covenant, that's, that's Old Testament, that doesn't really apply to us, and that's why I don't have to. Okay, for, for those people, and for us, we're all going to learn something from this, but for those people, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 6. And it says, the point is this, the person who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work, as it is written, he distributed freely, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Park right there for a minute. First Corinthians chapter 9, that's verses 6 through 9. He talks about sowing and reaping. If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. If you only plant five seeds, the most you're going to pull is five plants. If you plant generously, you're going to reap more. He says, don't give reluctantly or out of compulsion. Give cheerfully. Not because you have to, but because you get to, because you've been blessed to. And in every way, having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. In verse 8, we are blessed to be a blessing. God gives to us so that we can enjoy it, yes, but also give it to others. That we can be generous and that we can bless other people. And God will provide for you to increase your righteousness. Check that out at the end of verse 9. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10 is a couplet with that. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God doesn't increase their harvest of grain so that their grain will be greater. He increases the harvest so that the righteousness will be greater. God gives to us so that we can be better to the people around us that we can bless the body, we can bless unbelievers, we can bless the world around us. He says he's going to increase what you get so that you can do more and do it better. Not so that you can have more and feel better, so that you can do more and be better. That's why God blesses us. Sometimes he doesn't bless us financially for exactly those reasons, because we won't do better or be better with that. And that's a hard issue that we have to work out. Verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says, You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. We are going to be enriched for generosity. We are going to be enriched so that we can be generous. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Not just supplying needs, but supplying opportunities for people to thank God. When I help somebody and they say, wow, thank you, I say, I'm doing this because God has called me to do this kind of thing. If you want to thank somebody, thank Jesus. And it points to them. We had an opportunity one time. We... We were at a Starbucks, and I'm sitting there. Was it Starbucks? No. No, it was a restaurant. It was a drive-thru at a restaurant. And we're sitting there, and I'm looking at it, and I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and there's this group of kids behind me. There's like five or six kids in the car. And I told the lady when I got to the window, hey, I want to pay for the people behind me. It's like, what? So yeah, I want to pay for mine, and I want to pay for the people behind me. And for the people behind me, I want you to tell them, that Jesus loves them. 
which is kind of funny because it put her on the spot and it was like, uh. And I said, you can tell him that I said that. You don't have to tell him you said that. Tell him I said that. The guy in front paid for your meal. Tell him Jesus loves you. And I paid for my meal, paid for their meal, and I drove off and I knew, I knew that it was going to cause an opportunity for contemplation and hopefully Thanksgiving in that car. I'm not responsible to make that happen. I'm responsible to take that first step. We're not responsible for them saying thank you. We are responsible for us being generous. We are called to be generous. And that will produce an overflowing, he says, in expressions of thanks. And because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify your God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ. They'll glorify God because of how you give. And verse 14, where it finishes out here, and as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. They're not going to be thinking about, wow, they gave so much money or they did this for us or they bought that for us. They're going to think, holy smoke, what godly people they are. What a godly person they are because of the grace that they see in you as expressed by how we give. Point five, final point in your outline. Point five, gratitude produces generosity and generosity produces gratitude. They both glorify God. If you're having trouble showing gratitude, if you're having trouble feeling gratitude, if you're having trouble saying, Lord, thank you, then be more generous. Take a step of faith and be more generous. If you're having a problem being generous, count your blessings, thank God for them, and he'll give you the, the impetus to be more generous. They work together. It's a cycle. The more you're grateful, the more you'll be generous. And the more you're generous, the more you'll be grateful. And both of those things glorify God. And in back in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 15, it says, Look down from your holy dwelling from heaven and bless your people Israel. As the land you have given to us, as you swore to our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the final part of their prayer where they're saying, Lord, look down from heaven and bless us as you swore to our ancestors, as we do what you've called us to do. Well, Lord, we ask you to bless us as we do and live the way that you have called us to do things and the way that you've called us to live. And then the last section of this chapter here, verses 16 down through 19, is a reconfirming of the covenant that God made with them. So in verse 16, it says, The Lord your God is commanding you this day to follow all these statutes and ordinances. Follow them carefully with all your heart and all your soul. So he says, follow these things. Do these things. This is God's demand. God's demand for them is to do the things that I've called you to do. And then verse 17, Moses goes on and says, Today, looking at the children of Israel, you have affirmed that the Lord is your God. You have reminded, you have agreed the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commands, and his ordinances, and you will obey him. He's reminding them, this is what God has called you to do. Their response is that you have affirmed this. And God's response to this, to them, is verse 18, where he says, And today the Lord has affirmed that you are his own possession, as he promised you, that you are to keep his commands, that he will elevate you to praise and fame and glory above all the nations that he has made, and that you will be a holy people to the Lord your God, 
as he promised. So the whole point here is God is going back to his promise and he's reminding them. And Moses, as the people are ready to move into the promised land, reminds them that he is God. He has commands for you. You are his people. You're agreeing to obey those commands and he will be your God and you will be his people and you will do what he's called you to do and he will bless you the way that he has promised. Christian, God has made many promises to us and has called us to live in a certain way. If we live the way that he's called us to live, he will bless us doesn't always look the way that we would expect a blessing to look. Sometimes, like we see in the children of Israel here at this point in their history, sometimes the blessing is shoes that don't wear out, cars that don't break, roofs that don't leak. But we are called to be generous with what we have and grateful for what we've been given. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we Close out chapter 26 here, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be more generous. Lord, that you would help us to be more grateful. And Lord, that we would constantly be assessing our life and taking what you have given given to us and sharing that, Lord, with others. Lord, whether it's directly, whether it's through contributions to church, however it is, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful with what you have given to us Lord, and that it would respond in gratefulness in other people and that other people, Jesus, would glorify you through what we've given and what we've done. So, Lord God, be glorified in your people. We love you, and we look forward to seeing what you're going to do. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day. Glorify God with generosity and gratitude.